most facilitators, remember I'm using that word as a role, not a job description, most facilitators by ideology or habit or comfort choose to be mostly vertical or mostly horizontal. They get stuck in one extreme, and that's just as bad as being stuck either inhaling or exhaling. It doesn't work. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose and integrity. I'm your host, Tobias Sturson, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. I think that many of us feel that we live in a time of division and animosity, where tensions are high and battle lines drawn. While we do face tremendous challenges in the world, we seem to have a hard time coming together and finding solutions, both as communities but also as organizations. As I speak to and work with leaders and HR professionals, one question keeps coming up. How do we get our teams to collaborate more effectively across boundaries? How do we avoid unhealthy division and an us-versus-them mentality? This spring, we want to explore ways that we as leaders and professionals can enable healthy unity in diversity. I don't know a better place to start exploring this subject than with today's guest, Adam Kahane. Adam is a director at Rio's Partners, helping governments, companies and civil society organizations worldwide make progress on their most important and complex challenges. Adam is the author of Solving Tough Problems, which was endorsed by Nelson Mandela, Power and Love and Collaborating with the Enemy. Former Colombian president Juan Manuel Santos, recipient of the 2016 Nobel Peace Prize for his work in bringing the 50-year-long Colombian civil war to an end, credits the work of Adam Kahane with playing a pivotal role in this process. Adam's new book, Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences and Move Forward Together, is available for pre-order right now. Adam, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today. It's my pleasure to be here. I would like to start by asking you a little bit about your personal journey. Could you maybe share an experience that made you awaken to the possibility and the power of bringing diverse groups of people and perhaps even enemies together to solve a common problem? Well, the experience I had that gave me that opening and is really the hinge of my professional and even personal life was uh, exactly 30 years ago. Um, I was working in the scenario group at Royal Dutch Shell, the oil company in London. And there was a group in South Africa, academics, politicians, business people, who wanted to use the Shell scenario methodology to think about the transition from apartheid to democracy. And they wanted somebody who could provide methodological advice. And so I was invited to facilitate those workshops, what became known as the Montfleur scenario exercise. And uh, this was an extraordinary experience for me. I didn't, I didn't even know that was possible, that you could bring together leaders from across a whole system uh, in this case, black and white, uh, men and women, opposition and establishment, left and right, people who didn't agree with each other, didn't like each other, didn't trust each other, some of whom had had literally been 
been in armed conflict. So this experience uh, of that particular set of workshops, uh, that particular facilitation is what opened the door for me to this, yeah, this different way of working on complex challenges. That's that's so fascinating. And I, I really want to, I think, dig deeper into, into part of those aspects as we continue the conversation. But first, uh, you, I've heard you say that collaboration is not the only option, that many times we do choose other paths and that they might even be better for the situation. And I I love that thought because I think sometimes collaboration can become this buzzword or or silver bullet that we see as this positive without having any thought about why it would be important in a particular context. It's just something that we want more of in our organizations. However, we all have situations in our organizational context where collaboration is vital to solving problems. And how should we know, and maybe that's a very basic question, but how should we know when to collaborate? Uh, well, this for me is a is a fundamental starting point. And I, I think when you think about it in a particular way, the, the answer is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's literally impossible to collaborate with everybody on everything. That would be a ridiculous idea. So for that reason, the question isn't, shouldn't, should we collaborate or not? The question is, with whom do we need to collaborate on what? And the way to answer that question is to realize that when we're faced with a situation that we want to be different or we wish was different, we have not one option, but four options. And the four options are the following. The first is forcing. It means we try to make the situation the way we want it regardless of what other people want. And often this is a perfectly reasonable and legal and legitimate approach. We have the capacity and power to do things the way we want to do them, and we just do them. And I would say in most or in many situations, many organizations, that's the default. It might be done politely or rudely, but somebody wants to do something, they're allowed to do it, they do it. But the downside of that is well known. If I force things to be the way they want them to be and other people don't like it, they'll push back and we end up with a tug of war. The second option is to adapt. We don't like the situation as it is. We can't change it. So we adapt to it. And again, this is a very common response. Uh, It's minus 15 degrees outside here today, uh, my house in Montreal. Uh, If I want to go, I can't change that. If I want to go outside, I have to put on a coat and my snow boots and adapt to the situation. And probably if we think about it, 90% of the things we do every day are adapting to situations that we can't change. The third option is we don't like things the way they are. We can't make them the way they want them to be. We're not willing to live with them as they are, not willing or able. And so we exit. In Quebec, people go to Florida for the winter. They're exiting or they quit their job or they get a divorce or they check out in some other way. So this is a long way of saying that there's three other options, and I understand collaboration as a fourth option. Maybe for some people, it's what they prefer to do, and they they look to that first. Maybe for other people, it's what they prefer not to do, and it's what they do when they have no choice. But in any event, it's one option of four. So with this long introduction, the my answer to your question is we collaborate, at a minimum, we collaborate when it's required to move forward. In other words, when forcing, adapting, and exiting don't seem like good options. We don't think we'll be able to get where we want to go through forcing, adapting, or exiting. And therefore, 
we, we want to try collaborating. And the, the reason I put it that way is collaborating, which is working with others to get something done, even others that we may not agree with or like or trust, is not the most straightforward option. The other three options are unilateral, collaboration is multilateral. And so in my experience, usually collaboration is the option you choose when you think it's the, the best way or the only way to get where you're trying to go. And that's not 100% of cases. And I think interestingly, I mean, connected to that, that as when we talk about collaboration in organizations, that maybe the why behind it needs to be clearer, that we too often say that this is something, oh, we need to be one team, one company, one whatever it is, but we're not really clear maybe behind the, the why behind that, why we actually find that important and in what cases. Well, no, I, I don't really think of it that way. So people collaborate all the time in organizations. Uh, they can't get where they want to go unilaterally. And so they work with people in their team or in another department or another division to figure out a way forward together without, yeah, as an alternative to forcing, adapting or exiting. But for me, the one versus many is a different issue. Uh, I think it's an, a big error to say, if we're collaborating, then we're only one. So uh, let me explain. Uh, in all situations, we're both one and we're many. Uh, in all situations where there's difference and diversity, which is pretty well all situations, both statements are true, that in certain senses we're one and in other senses we're many. And uh, there's a big problem with asserting, okay, we're collaborating and therefore we're only one denies or suppresses or oppresses the difference and multiplicity and conflict that are real and need to be worked through. So for me, it's always important in any collaboration to recognize that we're both one and many. When my son got married about 10 years ago, I, I, uh, I think I, it's a little inappropriate or annoying that I decided to make this the subject of uh, my speech at his wedding. It, probably wasn't uh, the most appropriate wedding speech, but I, <laughs> uh, even though it wasn't exactly appropriate, I still think that what I said was important. And what I was saying uh, is the same thing as it applies to a marriage. And what I was saying was that uh, to become married is to become one, a couple. Uh, but at the same time, what I wished for him and his wife was that they also are able to become more fully two. In other words, each more fully themselves. And that's, I think, the not the paradox, but the tension in a marriage and the tension in any kind of collaboration that for it to be successful, we need to be one and to be many simultaneously. Or maybe you could say to move back and forth between emphasis on oneness and emphasis on multiplicity. When I hear that, I to me, that sounds like really a beautiful description of what a healthy unity is. And I think sometimes as we strive for unity, and I think that's a topic that, that is talked a lot about today and, and in, in the environment that we're in today, the need for unity. I think if we're not careful, we might opt for a future where we all just agree uh, and we do not argue, or which then I think limits diversity and, and diverse thought, and which also I think opens the door for unethical behavior because nobody is kind of ready or willing to speak up. And 
you made the case in an article for strategy plus business that teams should argue. And how do we create an environment for healthy disagreements and arguments that can further the mission of the organization and, and, and be a part of really building that healthy culture where we are, as you say, both one and many at the same time? Uh, I agree with what you're saying, and I agree that it's important. We're also aware of the dangers of difference and conflict, which can lead to fragmentation and polarization, and in the most extreme cases, uh, genocide. So the fear of difference and conflict is understandable. But to go to the other extreme and to say we're only one and all dissension or diversity or difference is to be suppressed doesn't mean that difference and diversity disappears. It just means it goes underground and either erupts with more danger or becomes a kind of a silent opposition or, or resistance. Another way of saying this is that what I've noticed is when there's a group of people and the facilitator says, I want you to leave your personal agendas or your own agendas at the door, and let's just focus on the good of the whole or the good of the group. In my opinion, that's always an illegitimate and even manipulative request that everybody has multiple interests. There's the task of the group. There's my own department or my own team or my own division. There's my personal interests. These are all real. And when the facilitator says, let's focus only on the task at hand, they're really saying, or when somebody says, let's focus on the good of the whole, what they're really saying is, let's focus on the good of the whole that matters to me. And there's only one or maybe two people in the group for whom their own interest and the good of the whole are the same, which is the facilitator and maybe the boss. So for everybody else to say, let's focus on the good of the whole, it's a nonsensical statement. There's not one whole, there's multiple holes and therefore illegitimate and, and manipulative. So it's for that reason that I say, let's recognize the multiplicity, let's allow it to be expressed, and let's figure out how to, yeah, how to work with the multiplicity, the difference, the diversity, and the, the wholeness and unity and, and common task. That's the, that's the basic challenge of any collective endeavor is to to work with both rather than only one. I think it's, it seems in our current politicized environment that we are further apart than ever and that the battle lines are drawn so strong that we cannot really find common ground or even think of working together with someone who doesn't share our beliefs. And I've heard leaders say that they were shocked to find out how passionately some of their employees held certain beliefs and opinions that have kind of come up over the last few years. And, and firstly, I want to ask you if you believe that this assumption that we are more divided is actually true. And, and secondly, how could leaders begin to approach bridging this divide in, in, in terms of bringing people together for collaboration? Well, it's a question I often reflect on because I read the newspaper like everybody else. So I'm aware that politically in many places, I don't know whether most places, but in many places, political polarization is very high with people having different political views and as a result of social media and other phenomena becoming more fragmented and polarized. I'm not really sure. I just don't know to what extent that's also true 
or, or to what extent that's important within the workplace. I guess that in most big workplaces that aren't homogeneous, those political differences or social or cultural differences must also filter into the workplace. I don't have much, uh, much direct experience of that. But I think there's another aspect of this that I have paid a lot of attention to because uh, 100% of, of my work and, and Rios's work is working with highly uh, diverse groups, often with people from different organizations and sectors and political tendencies. That's, that's what we do. So I'm, I'm well aware of diversity and polarization in those uh, multi-stakeholder groups. And uh, one of the places I've worked a lot for a long time is the country of Colombia, which, as you know, had a long civil war that for which a peace treaty was signed only in 2016. And uh, one person I worked with for many decades is a man named Juan Manuel Santos, who was the president at the time the peace treaty was signed and, uh, and won the Nobel Peace Prize for that. And in his uh, speeches about the peace process, he often referred to the work that that he and I did with a multi-stakeholder group uh, in 1996, so 20 years earlier. And I was pleased about that, but I didn't understand why he, why he remembered and kept referring to these few days of workshops that took place 20 years earlier. And after he won the Nobel Peace Prize, I, I was in Bogota and I did an interview with him. And, I, and this was a question I asked him, uh, why do you keep referring to those workshops? And he gave a very interesting answer, which to me comes to the question you're posing. He said, the reason I so often refer to those workshops, the project was called Destino Colombia. The reason I so often refer to the Destino Colombia workshops is because that's where I learned for the first time that it is possible to work with people who we do not agree with and will never agree with. And the reason I found this such an interesting statement is often people who who are active in collaboration or facilitate collaboration or organize collaboration, imagine that, okay, if we're going to get together, we're going to have a great conversation, or we're going to find actually we agree. And it was all a terrible misunderstanding. And for me, Santos is, is suggesting something different and, and more realistic, which is, yes, we're going to agree on some things and some things we're never going to agree on. And so the important question is, how can we work with people that we, we don't agree with? And this has been the biggest revelation for me in this work of the past decades is to realize it is possible, well, it's necessary and it's possible to work with people uh, that we don't agree with. And so this for me is the answer, the, the long-winded answer to your question. Yes, there will, there will always be diversity and differences and disagreements in any group. Maybe it has to do with, with these larger political matters, or maybe it has to do with differences about what's the right marketing strategy for our product, or do we agree with this particular decision about production? Could be about anything. But I think the, the mistake people often make is to say, well, until we've agreed on everything, we can't do anything. And I'm certain that that is incorrect. So, I mean, while most organizations don't struggle with the type of physically violent conflicts that you had in, in the Colombia example, I, I think like you mentioned, I think many do have uh, some quite entrenched animosity between different, maybe different divisions or, or different 
nations within the company or within the organization or just different groups? And how do you get people or stakeholders that might be in some kind of conflict to want to sit down together and work towards solving problems together? Well, it's always interested me that the capacity to have disagreement and animosity and uh, and feuds and fragmentation and polarization seems to be high in in lots of situations <laughs> you don't need a civil war to have animosity and in a certain way it's in more normal settings where we can maintain our disagreement or our feud or our animosity forever without great danger that that these things are uh, can persist uh, uh, you know i've seen it in my family i've seen it in my uh, in organizations I've been a part of, in communities that people, including me, have a lot of capacity to to maintain these these differences and uh, and divisions and silos. I know this will sound strange, but I think they're easier to deal with, or easier to see, and therefore easier to work with in these in these more extraordinary contexts than they are in these ordinary contexts where they're normalized. And it's considered perfectly normal that, you know, for example, these two divisions uh, or these two national units would have permanent disagreements or that my boss would be permanently dismissive or oppressive, that in a way the normalization is makes it more difficult to deal with. But let me answer your question another way, because this is a question that I'm probably asked more than any other. And the question always starts with, how do you get people to, and that was the, the wording you used five minutes ago, how do you get people to work together? And my own uh, position on that is, at least my professional position on it, is pretty clear. I know that I can't get people to do anything at all. Certainly, I can't get the people I'm facilitating or my clients to do anything at all. I have a limited capacity to get uh, the employees in Rio's partners to do what I want them to do. I have a limited capacity to get people in my family to do what I want them to do. So for me, the, the, it's the wrong way to phrase the question, how do you get people to? And what I've come to instead is, how can I find the situations where people want to work together or are frustrated or upset or unhappy because of these animosities or feuds or silos, and to focus my attention not on how can I get people to do things, but how can I, as a facilitator or manager or leader, remove the obstacles to people doing what it is that they really wish they could do. For me, this is not simply a semantic difference. This is a pretty fundamental difference in orientation. And so uh, in my current thinking and in the, the book that I'm publishing this year, Facilitating Breakthrough, this is the emphasis. The emphasis on, is on the facilitator or leader or manager, their task being to remove the obstacles to moving forward together rather than getting or forcing people to move forward together. And I love that perspective. And I think it is so important because I think too often I see leaders when we want to solve something or, I mean, change something in our culture or we need more collaboration, we'll, we'll try to do it by inviting an inspirational speaker to our annual conference or let our employees take a 
a course on teamwork. And, and while it might be helpful, I think that on its own, it misses the fact that the culture is always co-created and that there are systemic issues and obstacles that are too often not being addressed. And of course, the, they might be uh, in, in our systems and processes. They might be in, in our incentive structures. And, and But how do you think leaders can help remove these obstacles and also, I would say, see their own responsibility for removing the obstacles to promote cooperation or collaboration? Yeah, so I agree that I don't have anything against uh, inspirational speakers and training courses, but I agree that they suffer from exactly the limitation you mentioned. And the way I've come to think of it is that collaboration requires three ingredients. Contribution, meaning the diverse participants with their diverse uh, perspectives and skills and circles of influence and backgrounds are all able to contribute. Secondly, connection that people are able to connect to one another and to their situation and to their own intrinsic sources of motivation. And thirdly, equity, that the contribution and connection is, is seen as equitable and fair, that it's not just some people are allowed to contribute and connect, but that everybody involved is able to contribute and connect equitably. So yes, my attention goes specifically to what can facilitators and leaders and managers and, and everybody involved do to remove the structural and cultural obstacles, not in general, but specifically obstacles to contribution, connection, and equity. And I go further because I think there's a, another set of words we can use that are more fundamental and get to the, the bigger or deeper or sharper version of this. The other words we can use for contribution, connection, and equity are power, love, and justice. The way I'm currently thinking about it, and, and the point I'm making in this new book, is that the requirement for enabling collaboration is to enable power, love, and justice. I'm using those words in a, in a particular way. All three of these are required for people to be able to collaborate. So I'm trying to refocus the attention of facilitators and leaders and managers on those specific imperatives or unblocking those specific drives would be another way to say it. So to, to make that really, really practical, could you give an example? And I mean, it doesn't have to be a more corporate example. It can be an example of in your work of where you, you have been able to remove obstacles or, or working in the way that you've just shared with us. Well, let me give a practical and particular example. So my colleagues and I have worked a lot the last few years in Mexico and specifically on a big project relating to the education system. And so we worked with a group of stakeholders from the Ministry of Education and parents and teachers and principals and researchers in this field. It's a, a big, complex system with lots of ingrained structural challenges uh, bureaucratic and pedagogical and economic and cultural challenges in this big and diverse country. So what practically did we do? Well, um, we had a group of 50 leaders from these different parts of the education system. And the hypothesis was that they all needed to be able to contribute to the group's work, to the group of the so-called education laboratory, for us to be able to find ways forward to transform the system. So the imperative was for them all to be able to contribute. So this meant that 
It wasn't the minister needed to give a speech and everybody needed to listen. In fact, uh, everybody needed to contribute that in order to be able to work together and to understand the complex reality, they needed to be able to connect to each other and to the situation on the ground and to the larger context and to their own part in this system. And they needed to do this equitably. That, well, it's not unusual to the Mexican education system, but there's huge differences of rank and, uh, and position and power. And uh, that if those were replicated in the room, then the group wouldn't be able to do its work. So this group met uh, six times over the course of one year. And the very first time they were together, the the very first hour of the very first meeting, uh, everybody was asked to introduce themselves, sitting in a circle, introducing themselves one minute each, timed with a bell. Seems like a very ordinary activity, but... Uh, It was an extraordinary start, uh, which signaled from the beginning uh, the importance of contribution, connection, and equity, uh, that uh, everybody was being asked to to say who they were and what they were hoping this group would be able to accomplish. That was the contribution. They were all able to see and hear each other from sitting in a circle uh, and therefore able to connect as human beings. And thirdly, they were all given one minute, whether it was the indigenous teacher or the minister of education, the secretary of education. So there was a a signal of equity. And it might or might not sound extraordinary to you, but in such a a hierarchical and fragmented system, for everybody to be on the same level in the first hour of the meeting, because 50 people, one minute each, 50 minutes, uh, was a strong signal. And so in a way, the, the pattern in all processes set at the beginning, in this case, the pattern of trying to get equitable contribution and connection doesn't mean that one one one-hour session changes all the inequities in the system or the the structural impediments to to equitable contribution and connection, but it meant that we're attending to it and we're paying attention to it. And and, and, we continued in that way for the the year of work together. So that's what I mean by, by attending to contribution and connection, equity to power, love, and justice in everything we do uh, from the very first minute. Um, And that that's the requirement, that all three of those have to be present for a group to be able to collaborate and have any hope of affecting systemic transformation. That's that's so, so good. And, And I think they can really be this, I would say, helpful reminders uh, as, as we think about collaboration. And I think your work is, is very much that of a facilitator who doesn't have, a, in a sense, a formal or hierarchical position to make decisions on the issues that you facilitate. And if we think about an organization, how could our audience of uh, the listeners to this podcast, or many of them, I would say, are leaders, HR, ethics professionals, and so on, take on the role of the facilitator to collaborate and and solve problems? Uh, Well, thanks for that question, Tobias, because in fact, um, what I'm trying to do in the work I'm doing now and in this new book is I really want to change the definition of a facilitator or the understanding of the meaning of the word of facilitator to mean not just the person who stands at the front of the room by the flip chart or in a window in a Zoom conference, not just the trainer or strategic planning organizer or timekeeper or referee, but 
I want to redefine facilitator uh, as a role of helping people work together, as a person who supports a team to move forward together, and that that role can be played by a professional facilitator or a manager or leader or any team member or multiple team members. The reason I want to to broaden our understanding of the word facilitator is that I think that it's a more and more important role that also needs to be played by managers and leaders and HR professionals, et cetera. In other words, the percent of situations in which we can get things done by telling people what to do, I think is getting smaller. And the alternative to getting things done by telling people what to do is getting things done by facilitating teams to work out together what they're going to do. And so when I use the word facilitator, I'm, I'm using it to apply to everybody who's playing a facilitation role. And I would argue that the listeners of this podcast need to spend at least some, if not most of their time, playing the role of facilitators. I'm also a, a leader and manager. I have employees. I'm a a director of a company. And yes, some of the time I can just say, we're going to do it like this and people will go along either enthusiastically or reluctantly. Uh, So that doesn't mean that we never have to use forcing, adapting, or exiting to come back to the the first question we discussed. There's, those are legitimate options, forcing, adapting, and exiting. But I think more and more often we need to choose the option of collaborating. And if the team is collaborating, The role is not telling people what to do or managing them or inspiring them or whatever verbs you want to use for managers or leaders. The role is, in my opinion, the role of facilitating. And so when I talk about facilitating breakthrough, uh, I'm talking about a role that many people have to play in many contexts where collaboration is required. In in your new book, Facilitating Breakthrough, you introduce the term transformative facilitation. And what is that? Why is it maybe different from from, uh, regular facilitation? And and why do you believe it is so important? The basic point I'm making in my book is the one we were just discussing, which is that uh, if collaboration is important, then somebody has to facilitate it or somebody or some people have to facilitate or whether it's a professional facilitator or an amateur, whether it's a team leader, a team member, an HR professional, a consultant, whatever. And so the second question becomes, what does that look like? What, how do you facilitate? And when I looked at this uh, question, when I stepped back and looked at it, it seems to me that there's two, uh, there's two common ways to facilitate. Um, the first I call vertical facilitation, which is uh, where the emphasis is on we're one team, we have one objective, we're going to employ hierarchy of people who know more or people who represent the larger whole over the smaller whole or people who are more senior or more junior, but we're going to employ hierarchy to find a way to move forward as a group with the emphasis on the whole over the parts. And 
I think this is the most conventional way of facilitating. It's implicit uh, rather than explicit. When you asked at the beginning of this conversation uh, about the emphasis on unity, I think that's the implicit basis for what I call vertical facilitation. And it can work, uh, but it has, so it has obvious advantages of uh, coordination and alignment, but also obvious disadvantages of uh, subordination and resistance, exactly as we spoke about uh, earlier in this, in this conversation. The second kind of facilitation I call horizontal facilitation, um, and a lot of people use that as well. Here, the, it's almost the opposite. It's, a re, it's a saying, no, 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 we, we, we can't and we shouldn't use hierarchy. What's important is that everybody has the opportunity to express themselves. Everybody has the opportunity to do what they think is right. And here the emphasis is on not the good of the whole, but the good of the parts. The upside of horizontal facilitation is, is agency and contribution and equality. The downside is, is fragmentation and uh, not getting anywhere because everybody's just doing what they think they need to do. So what I call transformative facilitation is not one or the other, and it's not in the middle. Uh, this is, I think, the key point. What I call transformative facilitation is employing both or more particularly, moving back and forth between vertical and horizontal ways of working. Uh, like you advance in walking by first one leg and then the other. Or if you want another analogy, in breathing, we don't argue, is it better to inhale or exhale? We need them both, but we don't do them at the same time. The fundamental, and I guess you could say technical argument in the new book, is the kind of facilitation which is required to affect systemic transformation is moving back and forth between vertical facilitation and horizontal facilitation over and over as the situation requires. And then it goes on more specifically to say in five particular dimensions that, that I won't get into now. And that, that I'm introducing this, this model and this vocabulary that uh, in order to collaborate, facilitation is required, and in order to facilitate, we need to cycle back and forth between vertical moves and horizontal moves, and that's the, the methodology for transformative facilitation. So as we do that, as we try to, to cycle between those two, between the horizontal and the vertical, what are some kind of key principles that we should... Uh, operate by and what are maybe some dangers that we should be mindful of? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, thank you for that as I'm completing the final touches on the manuscript. So let me, let me also take that as a provocation to clarify that in the final text. Um, the most important principle is the one I've already mentioned, which is to recognize that, that it's a mistake to choose either the vertical or horizontal. And in my experience, most facilitators, remember I'm using that word as a role, not a job description, most facilitators by ideology or habit or comfort choose um, to be mostly vertical or mostly horizontal. They get stuck in one extreme, and that's just as bad as being stuck either inhaling or exhaling. It doesn't work. 
so I think the most important principle is to to realize we have to do both. And when when I find myself or when I find the group getting stuck in one uh, pole, my job is to introduce the opposite pole. And that's how the cycling takes place. Just like uh, if you've ever sailed a small boat, you move forward by tacking back and forth. You can't, there's no place in the middle. You do one and then the other and then one and then the other. So it's that's the basic principle is that we advance by alternating and not by any kind of middle course. And that what's required, therefore, the key competence of the facilitator is to be attentive, to pay attention to when do I need to do the opposite? When, is, when am I in the group tending towards excessive verticality, excessive oneness? And therefore, I need to introduce or push towards uh, multiplicity and horizontality. And when is the group tending towards excessive horizontality, which means uh, multiplicity, fragmentation? And therefore, as a facilitator, I need to say, let's see where the agreement here could be in order to move forward. And that there's never a stable point between these two. We advance by moving between them. Uh, just as we stay alive by inhaling, exhaling, inhaling, exhaling. So that uh, that's the, the basic model. Could you give uh, just a, a practical example of, in your work, what what that can look like? Uh, yes, the, the first thing that comes to mind, well, let me give two examples. The first is that sometimes a group needs to agree or conclude, reach a conclusion, And sometimes a group needs to move forward in spite of things not being agreed or concluded. And so it's not correct that we need to agree all the time at every step, and we can't move forward on step two until we've agreed on step one. But nor is it true that we can go on forever leaving things open and not agreed. And so the first cycling is between uh, agreeing, not agreeing, agreeing, not agreeing. Um, or you could say diverging, converging, diverging, converging. So that's one example. The other example would be, when do I need as a group member or as a group facilitator to advocate, to say, this is what I think, um, uh, let's do this. Uh, here's what I think the right answer is, or here's what I think the next step is. When do I need to do that? And when do I need to inquire and say, I'm not sure, what do you think? What are some other perspectives? You can't only advocate. You can't only inquire. Both of these are uh, not helpful static poles. But how can we move backwards and forwards between, well, to mention the five, let's see if I can remember them all, between advocating and inquiring, between concluding and advancing, between mapping and discovering, between directing and accompanying, and between uh, standing outside and standing inside. So there, I've given you the full summary of the book, saved you $17.95. There you go. So thank you so much, Adam. Thank you so much for this conversation and for taking the time. And and I I would encourage everyone to spend the $17.95 and get the book. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. And and what are other ways that our listeners can connect with you and, and follow your work? 
yes, thank you. Uh, I encourage you to go to riospartners.com, and that's the website of the organization I'm a member of, and where all of this theory arises from that practice, including the links to this new book and previous books and to the newsletter and other publications and webinars, etc., on the application of this work to many issues in, in many countries, uh, in many settings. So uh, if you look at riospartners.com, you'll see where you can get more information and where you can sign up. That's awesome, Adam. And, and we'll put up the links uh, to both that and to your book also on uh, leadingtransformational.com, where you can go and read more about this episode. So thank you again so much, Adam. Thank you. Wonderful. <laughs>